Let's pray together. Christ, you are before all things, and in you all things hold together. In you all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and you bring to us a wisdom that is troubling. Teach us with all your saints beyond our striving your true wisdom and bring our lives to flower less wearied with our effort and more aware of your power. May it be so among us today. Amen. Last week, Todd drew our attention to Jesus' humanity. We often don't linger there, but in some of these texts in Mark, we get glimpses of an exhausted Jesus, needing a break, trying to escape the crowds, and even needing to learn something through a cross-cultural encounter. And yet we feel pressure to have things figured out or somehow to be magically competent without going through this humbling learning process. Sometimes we buy the illusion that we can keep pushing ourselves without a break or that we should even attempt to be something other than fully human. But in the biblical vision of a wise person, the opposite of wisdom is to disregard built-in limits or to disregard input from others and simply charge on ahead. The well-known naturalist writer Wendell Berry spoke powerfully about the need to know, first of all, that limits exist and to live respecting these limits, to simply be who and what we are, just as nature is only what it is and not trying to be something else. We notice that plants adapt and thrive according to what they find in the soil and according to the light that they receive. That trees and and nature that kind of lives within its means, so to speak, lives within its limits. And at the same time, lives fully and beautifully the life that is its own, not trying to live any other creature's life or any other plant's life. Being what it is and being this with abundance. And it's very obvious in nature that creatures are dependent upon each other for survival, just as we are, although we don't often remember or acknowledge that. As our planet warms, I have found, um, as we see the effects of this warming becoming more dramatic and more visible every year, I've been thinking more and more about our human difficulty of living within our limits, or even admitting that there are limits that we should live with. 
As we watch powerful people plow ahead, taking more and more from the earth without regard for limits, and even with scorn for the limits that we must live within to be participating creatures in the natural world, I think about this biblical vision of what wisdom means and what it means to be foolish. The book of Proverbs calls out this foolish and destructive behavior. As part of an ancient wisdom tradition, Proverbs pictures the foolish person or scoffers or mockers, as we heard in our text today, as those who are not open to receiving correction or not willing to learn, but to go on doing what seems best to them without paying attention to the advice of anyone, including wise people who could tell them something they need to know, even for their very survival, or certainly for their well-being. In the Hebrew tradition, wisdom leads to life. And what is meant by life is often something that's in the present, but also a prospering of the inner life. Um, wisdom goes deep within a person. And, it, and in the Hebrew tradition, there was a belief that this would also protect the person from harm. There's an idea that those who are wise have the ability to steer through life, kind of like directing a boat. And at the same time, there's this strand running through the wisdom literature that, that promises wealth or material prosperity. The ancient sages are writing from their own social location as people who are well-off and relatively comfortable. And so we even see places where they blamed the poor for their poverty. Now, we also see this wisdom tradition developing over time. So there may have been a sense that if you, you, know, you do what is right or you, you are wise and you will be protected. And and those who are foolish just become poor. Okay, well, that's kind of simplistic. But as they developed their thinking, um, the sage who wrote Ecclesiastes, for example, begins to, to give some voice to a, a disconnect. He begins to name the times when bad things happen to good people. He sees and he admits that life as we know it tends to throw a wrench into how we think things should be. Sometimes calamity falls on a wise person. Sometimes wise people go hungry. And there's not a direct link necessarily between whether someone is prospering or has wealth and whether they're wise. So he starts to notice this in Ecclesiastes. He, he tells a story in Ecclesiastes 9 of a man who was poor and also wise for an example of this. There was, this is from Ecclesiastes 9, <clears throat> 14 to 18. There was a little city with few people in it. A great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. Now there was in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than might, 
but the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one bungler destroys much good. I mean, we could go off on a bit of a tangent there, but... But no one remembered the wisdom of this poor wise man. He notices this. He notices that this man is very wise and delivered in his entire city, and yet, because he was poor, he wasn't recognized for this incredible good that he did for his entire city. Now, Jesus continues in this line of Israel's sages. In fact, there's a whole tradition about Jesus that goes even before um, even before Mark was written about and picturing Jesus as one of these great sages in the line of, of Israel's wisdom uh, teaching. And Jesus takes this realistic look at life that, is, that we see in Ecclesiastes. He takes it even further and takes a more radical tack in his teaching, focusing on God's deep and specific concern for poor people and vulnerable people, and challenging social structures and practices that keep people down. Now, all the sages taught that wisdom is both a gift from God and also requires an active and intentional participation from us. Wisdom comes from the Creator, and one must be teachable to become wise. Jesus is expanding what it means to be an active participant in God's wisdom which brings well-being not just to the wise person, but even to a whole city. And Christ is, um, is associated very closely with the wisdom of God. We see him called wisdom from God in 1 Corinthians 1, a living and breathing embodiment of divine wisdom, very similar to this woman wisdom who we see crying out in the streets in the book of Proverbs. And there's this tradition that wisdom was with God in the creation, and Christ is associated with that in the first chapter of Colossians, where um, I began my prayer this morning, um, that all things were created in Christ and through Christ. There's additional wisdom literature the book um, Wisdom of, often called Wisdom of Solomon, is part of the Apocrypha, which some, some of our Christian siblings would include as part of the Old Testament. But its place as, as sacred text is disputed and it's not included in most Protestant Bibles. But this is the way that, um, was some, was actually part of our, our lectionary for this week, um, but not something that we would normally include in our Bible. But this is from the Wisdom of Solomon. About wisdom. She is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God. Does this sound like Jesus at all? And an image of God's goodness. Although she is but one, she can do all things, and while remaining in herself, she renews all things. In every generation, she passes into holy souls and makes them friends of God and prophets. For God loves nothing so much as the person who lives with wisdom. 
She is more beautiful than the sun and excels every constellation of the stars. Compared with the light, she is found to be superior, for it is succeeded by the night. But against wisdom, evil does not prevail. She reaches mightily from one end of the earth to the other, and she orders all things well. So this picture of goodness, more enduring than light, she orders all things well. This connection with shalom or salam, this well-being, life well-ordered. And interestingly, at the very end of last week's reading in Mark, I don't know if you recall, when Jesus had healed someone, people were saying about him, he has done everything well. And yet, Jesus knows that his way of walking in God's wisdom, in this radical love, is not always going to produce the kind of praise we see at the end of the second, the seventh chapter of Mark. He has done all things well. Prophets speaking hard truths were killed throughout Israel's history. And Jesus knows that he will end up joining them if he continues to teach and heal with divine wisdom. If he continues with this authority that is not dependent on human authority and does not answer to it. Jesus sees the inevitable. He knows that his teaching and his way of being is just too much for the powers that be, too much border crossing, too much freedom from the existing authorities. His call and his empowering for a reordering of human relationships that brings justice for oppressed people and even peace among enemies, even now, still seems unreasonable. It still doesn't really go over very well. The risk of losing one's life in pursuing this way of being is still very real. And Jesus knew that it would cost everything. And he wanted his friends, his students, to be aware and prepared. And Jesus' teaching about what lay before him is so scandalous that Peter takes him aside to set him straight. And in turn, Jesus is so adamant that this is God's way and this is God's wisdom, however confounding it might be to us, that he uses very sharp language to correct Peter. Reflecting wisdom's harsh words that we heard um, in the Proverbs reading, wisdom's words to those who would ignore her teaching, Jesus makes it clear that the stakes are high. Why forfeit your life when you could offer it to God in trust? Jesus saw the inevitability of losing one's life when following God's all-embracing ways. And there's this flow that he's entering into. He doesn't hold back in offering abundant love, and he doesn't hold on to his life in the process. But this willingness to give everything away in search for abundant life is a profound and troubling paradox. 
Jesus always seems to take things too far. And as we see with Peter's response, Jesus' way can feel unbearable. On the other hand, Jesus is watching the extremes of Roman imperial power and religious powers taking the role of God and destroying life. They were perhaps just as extreme in the other direction. And he knew that the divine imperative, the divine breath, is sustaining and nourishing life. But the paradox of saving our life by losing it gets more complicated and gets deeper when we think about the ways that we are shaped by our own culture, our own personal histories, our own personal pain, and even the history of the church. Give yourself away can be a triggering phrase for some people. And deny yourself feels and means different things to different people. And there are so many reasons for that, right? Like how much money a person has or how much access to basic necessities or what your family patterns and relationships are or how confident and secure someone feels or whether someone walks through life in a male body or a female body or a trans body or a white or a black or brown body. It would seem that being willing to lose one's life is is a different thing for different people. And yet, Jesus is speaking to crowds that are largely people with little money and little power, at least by the empire standards, many of whom probably could, could not read, And still, he's saying these difficult words to them. Of course, Jesus himself was poor, so he had a little more clout, maybe, to be bold about this. But what if Jesus is teaching them about something within them that needs to shift first? Something about the wisdom of love. Could it be that Jesus is challenging them and us to prepare ourselves on the inside to be able to face whatever might come at them or at us from the outside. Jesus knows that God's way of loving that is God's way of loving is so generous that it appears absurd and is threatening to people holding power, whether it's power in government or established religion, yes, clergy included, or on Wall Street. Because in these settings, the idea of letting go of control or not clinging to what you think you need to protect is really unthinkable. It's all about managing the crisis or managing people or managing money to get the results we want often living far beyond our natural human limits and doing violence in the process. But love is not manageable. Following Jesus is not manageable. It is only with our opening of ourselves and our allowing God to be God in us, 
through us that it is possible to follow Jesus. Maybe said a different way, the sooner we make our peace with not being in control of our lives, the better. We have choices, certainly, and it's important to give care to our choices. And choices can lead us to a greater openness and a greater willingness for God's ways to be lived through us. Or they can lead to our being more closed and more willful toward the wisdom and the, spirit, the Spirit's overtures toward us. But the primary choice is really just that, to go through life with open hands more and more of the time. Not to cling to my life as I know it or expect it to be, even my inward life, maybe especially my inward life. And to learn from Jesus a way that neither disrespects our core self nor tries to control outcomes. In trusting God to the extreme, Jesus does not assume that the wise will be spared pain or suffering. But Jesus knows that God does not leave us, that will not leave him, even in death. And that resurrection and not destruction is the end of the story. Much of this wisdom that I've been learning and that I'm sharing today about this open-handedness comes through a centering prayer tradition and, and comes through a particularly wise woman named Cynthia Bourgeau who writes about centering prayer and other things. And she speaks about the, in the wisdom of divine love that nothing is ever wasted. It might seem like the cross itself is really why. Why did this wise and innocent person need to die? But this assurance that any outpouring of self is a pouring into the divine flow of love in God And that when we are willing, this love and this life of God flows through us as well. And so we join the dance of the triune God, who alone is able to hold and transform all things.